Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauk, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. The relationship between Hermetic philosophy and the sciences is a theme that has run through most of my life, and I've always been intensely interested in the way in which both these fields approach the search for truth. The Hermetic path, based on the wisdom tradition and personal intuition, and the path of the sciences based on hard logic and mathematics seem to go off in two different directions. But it's becoming increasingly obvious that these two ways of knowing are slowly converging on the same fundamental truths. These two paths converged in me while I was a graduate student at the University of Vienna. I had gone to Vienna to study the school founded by uh, the great logician Kurt Goodell, who was a professor there when he published his famous Incompleteness Theorem, in 1931. Goodell's work came at the height of arrogance in the field of mathematics, a time when mathematicians felt they could explain the whole universe using math. Bertrand Russell had published the first volumes in his ambitious Principia Mathematica project to prove step-by-step step that mathematics was complete and absolute consistent system of knowledge. At the same time, Ludwig Wittgenstein was attempting to prove Mathematics was based on a perfect system of logical arguments. German mathematician David Hilbert was grounding math in fixed axioms that would produce a unifying theory of everything. Hilbert was so sure of his results that he announced at a math conference in Göttingen, Germany, that for mathematicians there were no unsolvable problems and all of nature could be explained completely using math. At the end of his speech, he shouted triumphantly, Wir müssen wissen, wir werden wissen. We must know everything, we will know everything. He became famous for that passionate outburst, which became the new credo of mathematicians everywhere. But sitting in the audience that day was Kurt Gödel, who a year later would publish a proof that in a single stroke destroyed all the pompous assumptions of Hilbert, Russell, Wittgenstein, and scores of other mathematicians around the world. Goodell showed that mathematics is a partial and forever incomplete system that will never be able to discover all the truths in the universe. For mathematicians, this was like calling the queen of the sciences a whore. What did Goodell say that was so earth-shaking? His proof shows that any axiomatic logical system, such as arithmetic, cannot be both consistent and complete because there will always be statements that are true but not provable within any formal theory. One example of improvability is the liar's paradox. If I make the proposition that this statement is false, it causes a loop of logic that will smoke the circuits of any computer. That sentence cannot be proven true or false because if it's true, then it's false. And if it's false, then it's true. Other examples of improvability include hundreds of basic axiomatic assumptions in mathematics that we know to be true but have no way of proving. But Gödel's proof was based on more than just paradoxes. He invented a kind of metamathematics to achieve a very objective view of the whole field. Think of it this way. Draw a circle around anything, you know, any object, any person, any situation, and nothing in that circle can be explained completely without referring to something outside the circle. There will always be something you have to assume but cannot prove. Draw a circle around that chair, and you cannot answer even the simplest questions without leaving the circle. 
Who made the chair? How did it get here? What did the materials come from to make up the chair? Where did that indentation in the seat cushion come from? Now draw a circle around the whole universe, everything in existence. It is built into the very fabric of our reality that you cannot explain the universe completely without referencing something outside the universe. In other words, in this universe, there are always more things that are true than you can understand or prove. This has really profound implications of which few people are aware, because Goodell's proof not only applies to mathematics, but to all branches of science and human knowledge. Protests against Goodell's ideas came from around the world. There were reports of mathematicians committing suicide when they read this proof, and untold scores of math students dropped out or changed their majors. Cambridge mathematician Alan Turing invented a machine that used only yes or no decision to eliminate the gray areas in Goodell's proof and sort out exactly what problems could be processed mathematically. Turing's machine became the very first electronic computer, but it did nothing to soothe mathematicians' souls, for it was soon proven that any algorithmic machine or computer is also inconsistent and incomplete. Bertrand Russell abandoned his Principia project. Wittgenstein first mercilessly attacked Goodell, but later admitted that math was essentially a game and that no mathematical statements were true in any real sense. David Hilbert retired and worked to find applications where his theories could be applied. His famous credo died with him and is now engraved on his gravestone. In his final years, Goodell was working on a corollary to his theorem, which expanded on the fact that the ultimate complete truth about our universe can only be found outside the circle of our universe. He believed it could be proven that there was one mind behind all the various appearances and activities of the world, and that this one mind exists independently of its individual properties projected into the world. He also stated that mind is not just not localized in the brains of people, but exists everywhere at once. I was spending a lot of time in the library tracking down published papers about Goodell's work, when one day I discovered a basement storeroom of old alchemy manuscripts dating back to the 16th, 17th centuries. It appeared when uh, Vienna and nearby Prague were the center of alchemy in Europe. I was really taken in by the symbolic images in these old books, and one of the most intriguing was a Rosicrucian engraving by Matthew Marion, first published in Daniel Mylius's Opus Medico Chemicum, the medical chemical work in 1618. The engraving is called Tabulus Maridina, or Emerald Tablet, and it is said to contain all the principles of alchemy in symbolic form. But what I saw in the engraving was a profoundly accurate representation of Goodell's ideas. The engraving depicts the birth of the Philosopher's Stone from the first matter as it leaves heaven, the spiritual realm of energy above, and is projected into earth, the material realm below. The engraving is in the style of a mandala in which one focuses on the center of the drawing and tries to incorporate all the surrounding images and symbols in one vision of truth. The first thing that strikes one about the picture is its sharp division into the above and the below. In the above, the larger sun of the one mind, whose rays encompass the whole universe, all of existence, rises behind the sun of heaven, or what is known by Hermeticist as mind the maker. 
This intermediate mind the maker is like an archetypal computer or matrix dominated by 29 cherubs or archetypal forces, which can be seen as the crystallized thoughts or word or thought of God carried from the light of the one mind. The three smaller figures of suns floating amongst the angels represent the three heavenly substances expressed as the Holy Trinity. The center sun is the tetragrammaton, or ineffable name of God, written in Hebrew. To the left is the sacrificial lamb, or son of God, and to the right is the dove, or holy ghost, hidden in matter. Any alchemist of his time would have recognized these three essentials or alchemic, as the alchemical principles of sulfur, mercury, and salt, respectively. The blow is divided into the daytime, solar or masculine left side, and the nighttime, lunar or feminine right side. This division on the horizontal axis represents the created world and mirrors the split of the human brain into left brain hemisphere, logical masculine consciousness, and right hemisphere, which is feeling-based or artistic feminine consciousness. At the lowest level of the material realm are the four elements. Centered between them is the fifth element, or quintessence, depicted as a hermaphroditic alchemist who holds up two starry hatchets, which represent the higher faculty of discernment. The alchemist has cut the change of unknowing that tied Sol and Luna to their duality and balanced the, the powerful forces of their separate sexualities. He has seen through the clouds of unknowing and realizes the powerful influence of the archetypal powers above. The empowered alchemist is symbolic of a successful integration of the opposing horizontal forces to his left and right. Half the alchemist's frock is black and with white stars, and the other half is white with black stars. Each half contains the seed of its opposite, like the Tai Chi symbol, and he has integrated the whole process into his own being. The alchemist stands on two lions who have a single head, which signifies the taming of the first matter. The lying on his left is the red fire element lying, in the, and the one on his right is the green water element lying, the alchemical union of fire and water. The alchemist is now able to enter the hidden vertical axis of reality. The first area encountered as the alchemist travels along the vertical axis is the right ring of stars in which seven larger stars predominate. The stellar ring represents the seven alchemical operations on the ladder of planets as cosmic or universal principles. This ring is followed by a semicircle of the five scenes that lead to the stone. From left to right, the black crow of Saturn, the white goose of Jupiter, the rooster of Mars, the pelican of Venus, and finally the phoenix of Mercury. Above the ring of stars and ladder of planets, and partaking of all realms in this diagram, is a central sphere made up of seven concentric layers. These layers symbolize each of the stages of transformation that must be peeled away to reach the stone, which is the innermost sphere in which a triangle is inscribed. The seventh and innermost sphere contains a central upward-pointing triangle of fire, which is the purified consciousness that is at the heart of this philosopher's stone. Within that triangle is drawn the symbol for the exalted Mercury, the perfect monad or stone. In the middle of the symbol is a single dot, the center of the entire engraving, and around which both heaven and earth and this mandala revolve. In the Middle Ages, there were at least 90 different definitions as to what the first matter was, but in the Hermetic view, 
It is the primordial chaos that contains all possibilities. It can be looked on as the unorganized state of energy or protomatter that is the same for all substances and exists in an invisible state between energy and matter. Again, according to Hermetic teachings, the first matter originated and is controlled by the light of consciousness from the one mind. The alchemists believe the first matter was a real substance that could be extracted from substances and made visible and tangible. They even used it as an ingredient in their experiments, and the primary tool for manipulating was the spiritual connection they made with the first matter, in which their own consciousness transformed it as they were transformed by it. Prayer and meditation were a big part of the alchemist's lab work. Sometimes alchemists referred to the first matter as the cornerstone the builders forgot, by which they meant that general awareness of the first matter and its tremendous power is not part of our civilization or culture. German alchemist Heinrich Kuhnrith said, The first matter is in the world, and the whole edifice of the world is beautifully adorned and will be naturally preserved by it. But the world knows it not. Above all, it is the subject of the great stone of the philosophers, which the world has before its eyes, and yet knows it not. The earliest source of the first matter for alchemists was the black fertile soil of the Nile Delta. The very word alchemy is from the Arabic al-kamiya, meaning from the black dirt of the Nile. Alchemists today still look for the first matter in black soil. When I was an apprentice, my mentor, Maris Favilla, and I drove all the way from Prague to bring back some first matter from the black forest in southwest Germany. He told me it was called black forest not for the density of the trees there, but for the reason the trees grew so thick there, the first matter in its rich black soil. He also said that the reason for all the fables and fairy tales centering on the black forest was that the first matter stimulate the light of imagination in people. So with six gunny sacks and a shovel over my shoulder, we traipsed for many hours through the black forest until we came to a likely spot where the first matter might accumulate. It looked virgin and undisturbed, and it was certainly off the beaten path. Maris pointed to a slat depression on the ground and said, Dig here. After I ducked through the crust, the soil below was surprisingly loose, so I knelt down and started pulling the black dirt out with my hands and piling it into a sack. I remember that the dirt had such a strong earthy odor that I started choking from it. first sack was about half full, and I was bent over with my hands deep in the dirt, when all of a sudden I felt something like a root move and started twisting around my fingers. I yelled and pulled out my hands, falling back on my butt and watching this snake wrapping itself around my right hand. What's wrong? Maris said from behind. There's a snake. Calmly he said, that's just a worm. Just a worm. This thing was 18 inches long and an inch thick. But as it turned out, he was right. There was a giant earthworm called the Reagan worm that lives only in the soil of the black forest. Its castings are so prized for growing beautiful roses that they sell for $40 a pound. Anyway, we ended up with five sacks of first matter dirt and took it back to Prague where we added some nasty stuff to it to start fermenting for many months. Eventually, we would distill and coagulate from this a test tube full of what he called gur, which he never shared with me. But essentially, it was an ingredient uh, that he used in his other experiments where he wanted to add life force to an elixir or, or animate something.
But dirt is not the only place alchemists look for first matter. For centuries, alchemists had associated the first matter with displays of light and described it as a hidden star inside a substance. I think mathematician alchemist Isaac Newton was looking for the first matter in his experiments in optics, where he disproved the common notion that prisms adding uh, colors to light. He showed that colors are carried in the light itself, and even separated out individual colors by passing the spectrum through slits and boards. Since the first matter was seen as the inner essence of substances, alchemists found it in liquids that ooze from materials such as dew or the sweat of metals exposed to certain fumes. They even found it in urine, and the alchemist uh, Hennig uh, discovered phosphorus by distilling bathtub full of boys' urine in 1669. He ended up with a glowing retort of liquid, very much like the expected first matter would appear. The fundamental principle of the alchemist's viewpoint, that our world is a physical manifestation of a hidden spirituality, is something that quantum physics has already proven, I believe. Some of the terms are different, but it is precisely the same cosmology. In fact, modern science has discovered exactly where this division between worlds is located. It can be found at the Planck level of reality, named for German physicist Max Planck, who is considered the founder of quantum mechanics. Planck was a very spiritual man who believed in the unknowable divine mind that existed beyond observation. This one mind permeated everything and manifested through symbols, including mathematical laws, as mind the maker. The Planck level is the scale at which the universe was created and is home to an intangible world that determines our physical reality. This invisible layer of reality is the fabric of existence and it carries archetypal information that originated with the Big Bang. According to astrophysicists, this information is embedded at the Planck level and consists of universal constants, mathematical formulae, and other symbols. The Planck level is a portal through space-time that is defined by the Planck space, which is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and Planck time, which is 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Anything beyond those limits only exists in a chaotic quantum form of pure potentiality, which is about as good a definition of the first matter as you, you can ask. The quantum form is a shimmering, um, uncreated reality that is manifested by the light of mind, or what appears in our equations as a probability wave known as the collapsible wave function. An outside observer collapses the probability wave and manifests its symbolic or archetypal potential. In this view, subatomic particles are patterns of perception within the gooey, chaotic, first-matter quantum form. The most alchemical view in modern physics is called the objective reduction interpretation, in which there exist multiple choices of consciousness that can access the information embedded at the Planck level. The more concentrated and focused this beam of the light of consciousness, the more complete the transformation or grounding of the hidden level of energy into matter. That brings us to the question of what is light, really. In the most general sense, light is the electromagnetic or magnetic spectrum that ranges from the invisible infrared frequencies through visible light and disappearing again into ultraviolet rays. Seen this way, it is not hard to understand how light carries information. We experience it every day with radio and television waves, cell phones, wireless internet, GPS, and scores of other information technologies. This property of light to communicate information is actually one of the primary characteristics of the alchemical symbol of light, mercury. 
In Hermetic teachings, it is the light of mind as well as nature, and since ancient times, Hermes Mercury has had the ability to travel both above and below, in both the spiritual and material worlds, communicating with both gods and humans, and existing in the borderline state between energy and matter. The same thing is true in modern physics, in which the basic component of light, the photon, can exist as both energy, a wave, and as matter, a particle. In fact, we know today that light was once completely material in nature. For 60,000 years after the Big Bang, light was a physical substance 200 times denser than lead. But debate about the nature of light raged on for centuries in physics. French philosopher René Descartes, considered the father of the wave theory of light, believed that light traveled in an unseen sea of first matter he called the plenum, a subtle substance of which the whole universe was composed. In his experiments, he demonstrated that light behaved like a wave and showed that refraction could be explained by the varying speed of light in different media. Particle theory of light was promoted by mathematician alchemist Isaac Newton, who postulated that light was composed of corpuscles of matter that were emitted from a light source in all directions at once. He published his results in his famous book Optics in 1704, which was motivated by a chemical work that suggested light was the first matter. Newton's alchemical studies also suggested that light might exist in two states at once, as both wave energy and particle matter, although the idea seemed too controversial for his peers, and he withheld publication. The changing of bodies into light and light into bodies, he noted, is very comfortable to the course of nature, which seems delighted in such transmutations. As it turned out, there is no better personification of light than the symbol for Mercury, alchemists called the rebus, the double-headed thing that shows two opposite faces to the world. Finally, in 1905, Einstein resolved the mathematical problems with light by returning to Newton's suspicion that light existed as both energy and matter. Einstein combined the wave and particle theories of light in a single concept in which photons exhibit wave-particle duality. His theory states that light has both a particle nature and a wave nature, and different experiments can be done to bring out one of the faces of light or the other. In other words, the nature of light, or which face the rebus shows the world, is determined by the conscious choice of the human observer as to which experiment to use in studying light. Some experiments prove the wave or energetic nature of light, while others' experiments prove the materialistic nature of light. Albert Einstein was the epitome of a scientist-alchemist and never lost sight of the fundamental mystery of the universe. He advised his colleagues to use both their heart and head and follow their intuition first. Most of his research was done in Gedanken experiments, thought experiments, in which he imagined such things as riding a beam of light through the universe. That is how he resolved problems with the speed of light and formulated his special theory of relativity, in which the fundamental constants of nature are relative to the location of the observer. Einstein proved an ancient tenet of alchemy that was previously unknown in physics, the fundamental idea of all is one and the equivalence between energy and matter. His revolutionary equation of the universe is E equals mc squared, where E is energy, m is mass, and c the speed of light. This theorem is a restatement of the three essentials concepts of the alchemist in which sulfur is energy, salt is mass or matter, and mercury represents light. From this equation, the whole universe unfolds. In an endless cycle through time, energy becomes matter, and matter becomes energy. 
From subatomic particles to stars, the universe is a cycle of birth and rebirth from the transformation of the first matter through light. In fact, if that little c in E equals mc squared stood for consciousness instead of the speed of light, there would be no difference at all between the chemical viewpoint and that of modern science. The concept of modern quantum physics are perfectly represented in one of the oldest alchemical symbols, the Ouroboros, which is a serpent or dragon eating its own tail. It can be thought of as the engine that drives the universe through the transformation of the first matter in a balanced cycle of destruction and creation. From earliest times, these drawings carried the caption, All is One. It meant that behind the countless dualities of our existence, spirit and matter, male and female, life and death, the universe was really just one thing. Among medieval alchemists, the Latin phrase solve et coagula, dissolve or coagulate or destroy and create, was also associated with the Ouroboros. The full phrase was solvita corpora et coagulata spiritus, dissolve the body and coagulate the spirit. Remember that alchemists thought of spirits as invisible forces, or what we would call energy. This idea is reflected in modern cosmology in the singular primordial atom of the Big Bang from which bursts forth our entire universe. This all-in-one concept is also part of modern astrophysics in what is called the egalitarian principle, which states that the universe is the same everywhere. Even four billion years after the Big Bang, the universe could fit in a coffee cup and it had the same consistency as it does today, 10 billion years later. On average, the amount of mass and energy present in any section of space is the same, and the same physical laws apply throughout the universe. In modern physics, the concept of undetectable dark energy and dark matter are nearly identical to the alchemist's orboric description of the first matter. Physicists believe dark matter and dark energy are responsible for the basic structure of the universe and have proved that Billions of bits of the invisible matter and energy interpenetrate ordinary matter, including our bodies, every second. In fact, 90% of the mass energy in the universe is concealed in this invisible substance, and it seems that the interplay between dark matter and dark energy is responsible for the creation of new subatomic particles as well as the creation of new stars that balance out the death of old stars in the universe. The total mass energy of the entire universe is 10 to the 53 kilograms. Amazingly, gravity has a negative mass energy value of 10 to the minus 53 kilograms. The result is zero. In other words, the universe sums to zero. It came from nothing, and it remains nothing. What an ingenious way to create something out of nothing. Somehow, mind unfolded nothingness back on itself to form space and conceal the first matter of creation in empty space. The equations prove that there is a trillion times more energy, 10 to the 94th grams of mass energy, in the empty space within a single hydrogen atom than all the matter, planets, and stars within 20 billion light years of Earth. It's hard for us to accept such an alchemical explanation of nature, but our billiard ball materialistic concept of reality is completely false and has polluted all our thinking and beliefs. No scientific experiment in the history of physics has ever shown that hard material particles exist or even can move. There are now hundreds of experiments that prove material particles move by being teletransported through time. 
disappearing from one place to reappear in another place without moving along a continuous path. Contrary to what our senses make us believe, the world is not solid and fixed, but is constantly being created out of a chaotic, formless, invisible quantum foam that is guided by the conscious expectation of what is there. That is a more perfect description of the first matter than any alchemist could ever conceive. Whether the conscious expectation that creates reality comes from our minds or the ultimate one mind is still open to debate in modern physics. For alchemists, however, the divine light of mind, the same light we share in purified consciousness and what they call the true imagination, is the fundamental force and ultimate source of creation on all levels of existence. Another mathematician alchemist, Dr. John Dee, created a symbol depicting the information carried by light from the moment of creation. He called it the monad, from a Greek word meaning the ultimate one, or the singular entity from which all properties are derived. It is said that if you drop the monad cipher into a great sea of the first matter, then the universe as we know it would emerge. John Dee is the reason you took geometry in high school. He became a champion of Euclid's geometry and campaigned to make it a part of the curriculum of every college and school. Dee was convinced Euclidean geometry was sacred and originated from the one mind just as Pythagoras taught. He believed it held the key that would unlock the universe. And modern astrophysicists actually agree with him. Just eight years ago, evidence was discovered from several independent studies that the universe is not curved as assumed in the last century. It is not negatively curved like a saddle, nor positively curved like a ball. While space can be curved locally, such as in the vicinity of stars, the overall shape of the universe is flat, and Euclidean geometry is the way it was laid out. D used Euclidean geometry to create and prove the monad in a work entitled The Hieroglyphic Monad, written in 1564. He used the ancient ciphers of alchemy as geometric figures and applied Euclidean geometry to capture their deeper meanings and relationship. Dee said his proof would revolutionize all areas of human knowledge and urged astronomers to stop peering through their telescopes, trying to understand the heavens, and instead spend their time meditating on his monad. To begin the work of the monad, said Dee, the aid of fire is required. At the bottom of the monad is the astrological sign of Aries, which signifies fire. Aries is the first sign of the zodiac and is associated with the burst of life force in the spring, at which time the great work begins. The bottom and top of the cipher are connected by a cross known as the cross of the elements. It is here that uh, the workings of manifested reality play out. In this section of the monad, all the glyphs of the seven planets and their associated metals, Saturn, lead, Jupiter, tin, Mars, iron, Venus, copper, Mercury, quicksilver, moon, silver, and sun, gold, all intersect. By tracing the connecting lines and arcs in different ways, one can locate the symbols of these five planets and thereby reveal the invisible forces behind nature. The merged planetary ciphers are arranged left to right and top to bottom around the cross of the elements. According to Dee, by placing the planetary ciphers in their proper relationship, the archetypal symbols come alive. In this arrangement, the sun is the only symbol that is always the same and, in that sense, incorruptible like gold. No matter which way the monad is turned upside down, left to right, right to left, or its mirror image, the cipher of the sun, gold, is always exactly the same. The heart of the monad, and the one cipher that encompasses all the others, is Mercury. In alchemy, Mercury stands for the principle of transformation itself, and is the first matter of the metals. 
Just as depicted in the Moldad, mercury is part of all the metals and elements of alchemy and melds them together as one. Dee embedded the spirit of alchemy at the heart of his master symbol and believed he had successfully captured the essences of all the archetypal elements and metals. People today have a hard time understanding why alchemists were so obsessed with metals, but imagine what the world would be without metals. Quite simply, civilization would not exist. The metals are truly a miraculous gift from the gods and represent the purest expression of the universal archetypes of transformation that we can access. Over time, the alchemist developed specific steps to exposing and working with the first matter of substance. Most alchemy texts scramble these steps so they are only visible to other alchemists. As I mentioned earlier, the key to understanding or deciphering alchemical stages and text is the, is the motto, Salve et Coagula. In another alchemical dictum, we see the real difference between alchemy and the science, or at labora, meditate or prayer while working, shows the importance the alchemists felt their own consciousness had in their work. Haste makes waste was originally an alchemist uh, motto, slow down to allow feelings and intuition to catch up. Going slow increases one's integrity, just as the slow firing of crucibles and glassware increase their integrity and strength. In math, the science, however, is all about thoughts and speed and getting to a true statement in the shortest time possible. I remember during all exams in grad school that as long as I was going fast and writing furiously on the blackboard, breaking chalk and making as much dust as possible, that my professors assumed I was on the right path and were more likely to accept my final result, even if I didn't don't know how I got there. Why the disdain for thoughts and alchemy? Thoughts were things to alchemists, like salt or crystallizations of inner impressions and feelings. Thoughts piled up and got in the way, and before long you were in a salted prison of your own making. In fact, medieval alchemists believed that the salt and tears came from the breakdown of thoughts by emotional energy. Wolfgang Pauli, another mathematician from Vienna, urged his colleagues to slow down their thoughts and allow f- for other ways of finding truth. Completely dedicated to the search for truth, he became known as the conscious of physics and was merciless in his criticism of others' work if he found errors when they published too soon. He had no patience for academic politics and rarely published his work, instead freely sharing his profound mathematical insights with other researchers. Pauli was one of the founders of quantum physics and won the Nobel Prize for his exclusion principle that no two electrons can exist in the same quantum state, which became the cornerstone of the new field of quantum chemistry. He also discovered the existence of a neutrino and was instrumental in the development of quantum field theory. It is obvious from correspondences with other physicists that he made scores of other important discoveries for which he never received credit. Pauli was an avid student of alchemy and felt it provided a deeper view of reality than modern physics. He felt that the goal of both physics and alchemy was to unite mind and matter. He wanted to resurrect the spirit and matter through the inner working of consciousness, which he believed was the great work of alchemy. In the same year Goodell published his famous proof, Pauli experienced a growing inner conflict between his mathematically precise logical mind and his profound intuition that often led to a direct gnosis of the deeper meaning of physical laws. He was suddenly overwhelmed by powerful truths coming from what he called visions of my soul in dreams. Pauli reached out to Carl Jung for help in understanding what was happening because of Jung's work in alchemy. 
As a psychologist, Jung believed the first matter represented the chaotic energy sealed up in the human unconscious that created archetypal patterns of transformation in the collective unconscious of our, of our culture. The two men began a close collaboration on the alchemy of the unconscious and the relationship between mind and matter. In Jung's masterwork, Psychology and Alchemy, you will find over 400 of Pauli's dreams documented, and their discussions on consciousness were collected in a book called Adam and Archetype. Throughout his life, Pauli was witness to the power of mind over matter. Many astonishing synchronicities followed him wherever he went, and he was famous for his bizarre ability to break crucial experimental equipment and computers simply by being in the vicinity. It got to the point that Pauli took devilish pleasure in seeing this happen and even took credit for it a few times. Physicists still refer to this phenomenon as the Pauli effect. Pauli spent the rest of his life working on a unified field theory that would explain all natural laws through a union of mind and matter, but he died of cancer before he could complete his work. Several of his colleagues believed he died of the Pauli effect on his own body, which had become the crucial piece of equipment in his own grand experiment. Pauli was not alone in accepting the alchemical idea that consciousness was a force in nature. About the same time, Gerdell was working on his proof, theoretical physicist Werner Heisenberg showed that precise knowledge and exact measurements are not possible on the atomic level. He showed that the act of conscious observation and measurement of one magnitude of a subatomic particle, whether its mass, velocity, or position, causes the other magnitudes to blur. Apparently, the impossibility of exact knowledge of a single particle of matter is a fundamental property of nature. This startling defeat for empirical measurement became known as the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle and is now a basic tenet in quantum physics. We now realize that at the quantum level, the observer is no longer external and neutral to the experiment becomes part of it, just as the alchemists believed. In quantum physics, the outcome of an experiment depends on what view is taken by the person doing the experiment. The uncertainty principle implied that the deepest facts of nature are not objectively verifiable and therefore not subject to mathematical treatment. It meant that the scientific method would never be able to achieve complete and ultimate knowledge of the universe. More recently, nuclear physicist David Baum developed the ontological interpretation of quantum mechanics in which mind and matter are viewed as opposite polarities in the universe. He demonstrated that electrons possess a proto-mind, or primitive intelligence, that seems to read active information in experiments. Bohm believed mind had been present in the cosmos from the beginning and is part of the fabric of creation. He also introduced the notion of the implicate order, which is the ground or undivided wholeness of the one mind of the universe from which the manifested world, which he called the explicative order, emerged. Eventually, Bohm would conclude that human consciousness and the physical brain itself could be transformed by contact with the greater mind of the universe. Alchemical principles are also being confirmed in experimental physics. In 1965, uh, physicists used a uh, particle bombardment vessel to change an isotope of lead into a small amount of molecular gold. And at the relativistic heavy ion collider at Brookhaven National Laboratory, physicists might even have created the elusive first matter of the alchemist itself. They were attempting to reproduce the state of matter in the first microseconds after the Big Bang by accelerating electrically charged gold atoms close to the speed of light and then smashing them together. Their equations predicted a hot gas made of quarks and gluons would result, but instead they produced a glowing primordial liquid. 
The strange liquid was absolutely pure energy that exhibited perfect consistency any other part. The alchemists were philosophers in the truest sense, literally lovers of wisdom. If you think about it, the possibility of wisdom is really our only hope and the only path to real truth in the world. And very often, wisdom lies outside the narrow game of mathematics and the scientific method. I slowly realized this and finally decided I would rather be an alchemist than a mathematician. Many years ago, I abruptly changed my career path from automation logic designer to full-time alchemist. It caused me a lot of problems, problems with money, lifestyle, relationships. Even the IRS gave me a hard time about calling myself an alchemist. Maybe they thought I was making gold on the side or something, but they audited me after I wrote that on my 1040. Now I feel satisfied with my work and I'm happy to have finally found it to fix your reality and how your thoughts become things. Stop thinking with your nervous system and open your heart to the amazing mystery behind everything we do.